Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Philippians chapter 1, that's where we are. And uh, this morning, our scripture reading is one verse long. One verse long. Uh, I'm going to preach today from the title, here's what, I, what I'm titling the message today, you can write this down, Re-Familiarizing Philippians. Re-Familiarizing Philippians. I'm going to be probably teaching more today than I will be in the weeks to come, but want to make sure we have some uh, good background and context to what we're studying here in this book. I do think there's a lot of application that we'll draw from what we're going to study today. Uh, for some of you, this is... Um, going to be a familiarizing experience. For others, it'll be a re-familiarizing experience with this book. But uh, yeah, let's read together. Here's a, we're going to give an intro today to this, uh, this series and setting a backdrop for the weeks ahead. So if you look at your Bibles, uh, the verses will also be up on the screen. But here is Philippians chapter 1. So we break into this incredible epistle and letter. Philippians 1 verse 1 says this, Paul and Timothy bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. This is God's word, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We, we want to make sure that we offer that, just that um, expression of gratitude to you every Sunday as we get to open your word um, I'm thinking about my son and him reading this week about Brother Andrew in Asia and how he was smuggling Bibles into the iron, uh, through the Iron Curtain area back there and, and the difficulty that, that many of our brothers and sisters face all around the world, um, not having access to the same spiritual resources that we may hear. And so, God, we, ju- we just come to you this morning and... We come to you knowing that our natural American tendency is to sort of be half thankful for things like your word, to not be as appreciative of the blessings we have. God, we even have this tendency, I know even I do as the pastor of this church, God, a tendency to just kind of um, religiously approach Sunday and church and So we just pause here for a minute in the middle of our gathering, drawing our attention to you. We want to just focus in on the opportunity before us. We want to open up our hearts to you. We just believe your word that, God, you're especially present right now in the gathering of your saints. And we're not just here to do a religious thing. We're not just here to sing some songs. We're not just here to listen to a man with a microphone speak to us. God, you've brought us here this morning to encounter you, to hear from you. You're looking to speak into our lives, to transform our lives. And so we just present ourselves to you this morning, thankful for this opportunity, thankful for your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Move in this time, move in our lives. We give it to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, usually I've uh, had this kind of habit of starting each of my sermons off with a deep introspective question, or maybe even just a practical life question to have you think about uh, where we're headed here. And so today, for this intro to Philippians, my big introspective question for uh, the start of this sermon is simply Are you familiar with Philippians? Are you familiar with Philippians? Now, it's possible with a book like this, that uh, in, a, in a church as diverse as us with different backgrounds, uh, that some of you may not be familiar with the book of Philippians. Though that is possible, it's also probable that most of you are. I'd say if we were to take a poll in this room, most of you at some point have studied the book of Philippians, or whether uh, you know it or not, you are familiar with the book of Philippians. Why is that? Well, the book of Philippians, more than any other book in the Bible, has contributed to uh, the highest volume of life verses. 
Like if anything, if any you know, book of the Bible has been coffee mugged the most, <laughs> it's the book of Philippians. Let me give you some examples of this. This is where, where we're headed in the weeks ahead, this coffee mugged tended book. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How about Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2.12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love, I can't wait for Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already attained or am perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Doesn't end there. In fact, some of the more popular ones are coming. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is from heaven. There it is. How about Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's one you've never heard of. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Steph Curry right there. All right. Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ. I had to trim this down because I had like eight more. All right. So you kind of get the point, right? The book of Philippians, on one hand, man, it's so loaded. It's so rich. There's so much, I believe, ahead of us in this study that God is wanting to deposit into our lives, to transform our lives, to actually be those that are living into and living out of the truths of this book. But one of the dangers that we could face with a book like Philippians is that we are all too so familiar with it to where we actually miss the heart of what it's seeking to Communicate the danger of familiarity. You guys know about the danger of familiarity? Where you can know something so well that you actually don't know it at all, or you think yourself to know a topic or whatever it may be, you don't realize how much there is still to learn. Um, this week, Judah was doing a school project, my seven-year-old, and normally Brittany is the best person to step in to help him with some of the history stuff, um, I'd like to go back and kind of like do school all over again, like Billy Madison my way through it again. Um, that was an inappropriate reference, I'm sorry. Um, but but I, I'd like to, you know, I, I squandered my years uh, in, in, in uh, academia. And, uh, and so I'm learning a lot of, <laughs> a lot of like what I should have learned, I get to learn now. It's like I get to go to school again because my kids are, are learning it. So Judah had this project uh, this week and he had to, uh, they give him like this safe like online school uh, website thing that he searches information on. It's like Wikipedia for Christian school. And uh, there was this project where he had three characters, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and George Washington. And there was like a bio with details about each of them. And he had to go on and he had to, the project was for him to write down one thing that he didn't know about them. And so I was like, oh, this is great. Judah, you don't even need to go on the website. Let me just tell you all that I know about these guys. <laughs> And I start going, you know, and he goes, yeah, I know that, Dad. I already knew that. So I'm like, what? And so I'm like, yeah, me too. Right, Judas. So we go on the website, and I'm reading through these, like, these, these background things about Martin Luther King Jr., for example, of, like where he's from and his background and his family's history. And I'm like, oh, Judah, like, we, you know that. You know, he's like, no, Dad, I, I knew that already. Like, you know, Miss Woodford taught me that this week. And I'm like, right, I, your father does too. Let's go to the next point, you know. <laughs> and I would have been done with his project much, much faster, there's a lot more that I uh, didn't know about these guys I thought I was so familiar with. Uh, Judah, my seven-year-old, was showing me up. Um, but again, there's a little illustration for you about the danger of familiarity. So that's what I want to be able to do today with a book like Philippians. I want to make sure we have some real, true familiarity with what this book is uh, intending to gift us with um, as that which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, and so I want to give us four key pieces of context for the book of Philippians that will set the course for our weeks ahead today. Uh, and I would say this, that even though this can kind of be brushed off as just like a teaching, I think that this may be the most important sermon. This will be the most important study uh, as it will lay the foundation for the things that we study in the future. Um, I tried to get my excitement about this out earlier in our pre-service meeting, but I'm just really excited about the alliteration of my points today. And so I just want you to know I really care a lot about my words sounding the same. I hope you know that by now. And so if you're taking notes, here are the four things that we're going to explore today. You can write these down. We're going to look at first the background of the author. Secondly, we're going to look at the backstory of the church. Thirdly, the backdrop of the letter. And fourth, the backbone of the message. All right? The background of the author, the backstory of the church. We're going to look at the backdrop of this letter. And then the backbone, the big idea of the message. The author, the church, the letter, the message. Let's begin here with the background of the author of Philippians, who most of us by now know is the great apostle Paul, and that's not speculation, that's revelation given to us here in verse 1, where Paul introduces himself. You know, in our culture, when we're writing a letter to someone, we start with their name, and we usually end with our name. But what a great way to determine whether or not you want to read the letter. They tell you who they are before they even say anything about what they have to say. It's kind of like a text, right? You get text sometimes, you're like, no, I'm not going to read that right now, okay? Like, you just see the name. You're like, nope, all right? Well, here Paul starts off and he's like, listen, this is who I am. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. It can be really quick to rush past those, um, those few words there, even those four letters, Paul. Um, but there is such a significant background to this individual that it's worth taking a moment to be reminded of. The Apostle Paul here introduced himself with his disciple and protege, Timothy. Paul is the main contributing author of this book. Some scholars believe maybe he's dictating his words to Timothy and Timothy's jotting him down. Everywhere Paul went, nonetheless, Timothy was there. Paul introduced himself here as a bondservant of Jesus. But if you know anything about the background of the Apostle Paul, you know that he wasn't always someone who would, who would identify this way. Paul wasn't always someone who said, hey, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. In fact, for most of Paul's life, uh, prior to his conversion, you could say that he was more of an adversary. In fact, a ferocious enemy of Jesus and of the way of Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I had you put your finger there. I want to make sure we read this together. Acts chapter 9. Before the apostle Paul, as, as his Greek name uh, is, is used, Paul, was this incredible leader of the early church, he was, prior to that, you could say, the hostile Saul. That's his Hebrew name. Uh, you get the most detail about Paul, I think, in Galatians, where Paul is kind of telling his testimony in Galatians, and he says, you've heard of my former conduct in, Ju in Judaism. Paul was a, a Jewish man, but he was, um, he was the most... Jewish out of all the Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was a group of Pharisees, 70 uh, of uh, like a council of 70 Jewish leaders that set the course for the nation spiritually. Paul was a part of that select kind of Navy SEALs Pharisee group. And as a, a Pharisee, as a Jew, Paul talks about his passion for Judaism was so great that he persecuted prior to coming to Christ. Paul was responsible for persecuting the church of God beyond measure and trying to destroy it. Only Jesus can take someone whose life purpose is to destroy the church and change a heart in such a way that their life purpose is to build up the church and plant the church. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Um, that, that's his, his backstory. Um, we know this about Paul. We, we see him for the first time he's mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 7. I had you turn to Acts 9. We're going to look at this in a second. But in Acts chapter 7, uh, you have the, the martyrdom of the first Christian, the first Christian martyr. And it's the deacon, Stephen. Stephen gives his life for, for Jesus. He, he preaches a bold gospel. 
those who were hearing it, their hearts were hardened toward the message of the gospel. And so they, they ran at him and they stoned him. It tells us there in verse 58 that they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And then notice this. This is the first mention of the Apostle Paul in, in our New Testament. It says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When you get into chapter 8, you get a little bit more detail. Um, it says this about Stephen's martyrdom. Acts 8.1 says that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. So you just get the picture of what Paul's whole life purpose was about. The word consenting there doesn't just mean like, yeah, go ahead, kill him, you know. The word consenting there means it brought Paul great passion and pleasure for Stephen to be killed for his faith in Jesus. This is Paul, or this is Saul, um, as we know him, his name in Hebrew, prior to his conversion. It says, at that time, notice this too, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. It says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, Except for the apostles, we see here about Stephen that devout men carried him, this first martyr, to his burial. They made great lamentation over him. But notice this. Look at the contrast between Stephen and Saul. But here's Saul. It says he made havoc of the church. Entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The word havoc there in the Greek, it's a military language to describe an army completely devastating a city. Or, or think of like, um, like a, a, some kind of predator just tearing apart its prey. This is the language used of the Apostle Paul prior to his, his conversion. This is the nature of his life, wreaking havoc on the church. And notice even like you get a picture to his depravity. And what an interesting contrast, because he's this righteous law-keeping man on the outside. And he kept all the rules of Judaism. And he was, you know, he, he was blameless according to the law. In Philippians 3, we'll read that. Yet at the same time, no amount of law-keeping can change the sinful nature of the human heart. And you see just an insight to that. Look at what he was capable of, not just dragging off, dragging off men to prison, but also women. So like, think of like, what he was responsible for in leaving like orphaned families, like taking mom and dad, and they're both going to jail for being supporters of the way of Jesus. Now, uh, this all comes to a, a culmination here. You're, you're in Acts chapter 9, right? Because these verses aren't going to be on the screen, so make sure you look at them. Here's what Acts chapter 9 says. It says, Then Saul, Acts 9 verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What an interesting way to say that. It was like the very air he breathed was to take out Christians and to try to um, kind of stomp out the Christian movement that was at this time growing exceedingly. In Jerusalem, some scholars estimate anywhere from twelve to 18,000 Christians just booming. We had the dispersion that happens as persecution arises. But Saul, is he's just breathing threats and murders against the disciples of, of the Lord. Like if you were to ask Paul, like, Paul, what's your passion? You know, it's like it's killing Christians. Like that is the thing that, that makes his heart beat. So Paul goes to the high priest, the highest uh, spiritual authority there, and he asks letters from him to go to the synagogues of Damascus, which is 120 miles away from Jerusalem, a six-day journey. Like, wow. Like, talk about being, like, devoted to your craft. Like, I'm going to travel a six-day journey to go kill some Christians. That's how zealous Paul was. That's how much Paul worshipped his religion. So he went to get some special permission to be able to have the authorization to be able to imprison these Christians. And he says he would do this so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, uh, we must remember that though in our country, this is not a normative experience. Like we use the word sometimes in the church persecution in, in almost like an offensive way, sometimes like I'm being persecuted. And I'm not saying that, that there's not persecution that happens at all here in our country. But like when we talk about um, persecution in the Bible, we're talking about things like this, that though it might not be our norm, like the fact that we have to keep it down in our church service and we got to make sure we're discreet about what we're doing, that might not be a norm for us. But we know that's a norm for not just um, a vast majority of the church throughout history, but even today, you could say a vast majority of the church around the world. In other parts of the world, that are, this is their normal. It might not be ours, but Hebrews tells us to remember your brothers and sisters that you're chained with, that you're, you're suffering with them. One part of the body suffers, the whole body should suffer. So this was Paul's mission, to pursue this kind of 
persecution against Christians. And then, of course, Jesus shows up. I think it's interesting to point out here, there's, I mean, we've read the same verses. In my estimation, my best Bible interpretation, I would say it's pretty clear in this text that Saul is not seeking Jesus. He's seeking followers of the way of Jesus for a different reason, but he's not like open to Jesus. He's not like running after Jesus. He's not like asking questions. Well, you know, like maybe he's the Messiah. Like we're talking about someone whose heart is as hard as it could get to the way of Jesus. And we get a great picture here to the fact that there is no sinful rebellion. There is no hardened heart that is outside of the saving grace of Jesus, that's outside of the work, the powerful work of God to rescue. We tend to write people off sometimes, right? Like, oh, yeah, they could never become a Christian. And what we tend to do is when we're saying that is we tend to make their salvation dependent upon them being, like, savable, as if we were, right? And so it's just good to be reminded, here's here's the greatest Christian missionary, apart from Jesus here, uh, in the making. It says in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And then here Jesus shows up, verse 3. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. It says, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting? You see how personal Jesus takes the persecution of his church? They really are. It really, the church really is his body. So for a Christian to be persecuted, Jesus says, that's like you're persecuting me. Look at the ownership Jesus has over his church. What a terrifying moment for Paul. This isn't just like the sunshine state, a light shining, beautiful and bright. This is a terrifying moment as he's knocked off literally his high horse. He falls to the ground in every sense, right? Verse 5 says, and he said, key question, who are you, Lord? Now, Johnny Cash says that he already knew. Johnny was right. Verse 5. Then the Lord said, you thought that was going to be a lot more profound than it was. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> that is pretty profound. Johnny Cash, he already knew. All right. Verse 5. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus. Who else are you persecuting? AKA, right? Whom you are persecuting. Look at this question. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? The goads were those spikes that would keep the oxen moving forward and to kick against it, which is like it causes you pain to rebel against where where God is calling you. So I think this gives some instance that maybe Paul's heart was softening to Jesus. And like sometimes when I've seen this happen, uh, man, God forbid in my own life, but in, in other people's lives in a very tragic way where like I've seen this happen where people's hearts are really hard to Jesus and then they start softening. It's like, and then they get harder than they were before. Because there's that, there's that moment where like God's trying to break into your life. Jesus warns against like how, how, how that can have a negative effect. If you don't open up, today's the day of salvation. I've seen that happen. Jesus is tr- it's like that window of softness where your heart is softening before it gets even harder than it was before, where you close up. And uh, Jesus is like telling Paul here, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of you. Is it hard for you to, do you like the pain of your rebellion? What a great question. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? The answer is yes. Like, ouch. Rebellion hurts, but I don't know. The pain of rebellion, unfortunately, does, hasn't really stopped me in my rebellion often. Um, stubbornness. And notice this, verse 6, it says, and he trembling and astonished said, this is another key question. So first question is, who are you, Lord? Second question is, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. He meets up with Ananias. He gets baptized and God gives him his mission that he's going to be a, 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 a missionary to the Gentiles, not his Jewish people. It's going to lead to things like the book of Philippians. Uh, but just a remarkable display of God interrupting a life that was set on rebelling against him. A remarkable display. Now, this is the background of Paul's conversion. A guy who was interrupted, like stopped in his tracks, and heart completely changed and rescued by Jesus. And I think, I think of these two things. If you want to write these down as we're talking about the background of Paul? This is, just my, this is my thought for Paul. If there's two things that, that we can gather from Paul's background, like what is it about this guy, Saul in Hebrew, uh, he became Paul. A lot of people th- are like, oh, he changed his name, like Simon to Cephas. That's, I mean, it wasn't like his name wasn't uh, 
Saul anymore. It's just that he went by his Greek name as a missionary to, to Greeks and to, to Gentiles. Uh, but this individual whose life was so radically transformed from the, the hostile Christian persecutor Saul to the Apostle Paul, to a servant of Jesus. Um, there's a lot of talk today in the church about like miracles, you know, like where's, where's the miracles? How come miracles only happen in Africa, in Haiti? And, and, and I have my own theories about that I won't bore you with, and there's probably theories, but yeah, I love what John MacArthur says. He says it really well. He's kind of against miracles sometimes. Like, they don't exist. Anyway, but one, one thing that John MacArthur says that I think is really profound is he says, when we ask that question, miracles, what, what we actually are missing is the most meaningful miracle that God does every day. The, the greatest miracle that God continues to do to this day is to transform a life. It's the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle, this is, the greatest miracle is not that Paul goes on to be a guy who's like handkerchief heals people. That's cool. That'll like, that'll be a popular carnival tent. You know what I mean? Like, but the greatest miracle is that Jesus completely changes this guy's life. That's the greatest miracle that he could do in your life as well if you're available to him. Completely transform your heart and mind. Completely transform your life. Now, when you see this transformed life in action, I think there's two big things that define Paul's life. When you study him, most of the New Testament is either about him or him writing in regards to book and volume. And you see these two things as kind of the main thrust of what defined Paul's life. First, I think what you see in Paul is a life that's defined by gratitude for the grace of Jesus. Because here, man, both of his... Um, I guess both of his tendencies were replaced with the gospel, were replaced with the grace of Jesus. For, for so much of his life, his whole like, identity and confidence was rooted in his performance, like his right law-keeping. I mean, that's why he was killing Christians. He thought he was doing God a service. And that was his identity, was like in how good he was. Such can be ours as well. You know, we all, we all have this tendency to, like, feel like we have a little bit more wind in our spiritual sail when we're nailing it, right? Like, I'm, me and God are good today, you know? It's like, I didn't, I didn't, like, beat back at that person. I didn't yell back at that person. I didn't, you know, tell them that they're number one, you know? Like, if you know what I mean, you know? Like, like I, I had some self-control. And we can kind of have these days where, like, we're like, we can be like Paul the Pharisee, right? Where our... And we kind of, and the more that's your identity, the more other people, they kind of like, oh, they're a little lower. Because they sin differently than you. Those kinds of sins that you don't do. I mean, your sins, whatever. You know, but their sins. Whew. All right. And that's kind of the self-righteousness thing. And that was for a long time Paul's confidence. But now, look, he's face to face with his unrighteousness. Talk about missing the mark. Who are you, Lord? He's like, oh, don't say Jesus. Right? His whole life is about trying to hit that bullseye. He's, he's aiming at a wrong target here. So now he's come face to face with his unrighteousness and his self-righteousness. All the good things he's done don't, don't matter anymore. And same is true for all of us. There's no amount of self-righteousness and good things that can undo our unrighteousness. We stand before God. He's not like, well, just like, no, you did some good things. Come here. You're good enough. There's no, you know, there's no good enough system with God. Because the truth of the matter is, is, even Scripture says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before him. Truth of the matter is none is righteous. Not even Paul. Not even the best Pharisee among us. All have sinned, including Paul. And here Paul falls short of the glory of God. Falls off his horse. And now he's face to face with his unrighteousness, Right? And maybe now, and that's some of us in this room, some of you, it's not that you find your identity in your goodness, but you find your identity in your badness. It's not the good things that you've done that define you, it's the bad things you've done that define you. And you are what you are based on your negative performance. Nonetheless, it's an identity that's rooted in your own ability, your own performance. And, and to both of those situations, Jesus looks on at Paul and he says, get up, arise. You are not worthy. That's, that's not why I'm leading you to stand up, but I love you. Stand up. And so Paul is this great picture of how the grace of Jesus, being identified as someone who just God loves, 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's like, I'm, I'm, out of all the apostles, I shouldn't be an apostle. He goes, but I am what I am by the grace of God, by God's grace and his love towards me. That's what Paul's life gives us, this gratitude for grace, this identity that's not rooted in human performance, but in Jesus' performance, in the grace of Jesus. I want you to see how important this is. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. He counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. I imagine Paul saying this like, I can't believe this. He counted me faithful? This is crazy. He put me in the ministry. He says, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an innocent man. Paul knows who he was apart from Christ. Sorry, an insolent, excuse me, an insolent man. Not an innocent man. Definitely not an innocent man. He says, but, though those things were true about me, he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. There was a part of me that was blind to the truth, even though I thought I had the corner on truth as a Pharisee. And I love this verse in, in verse 14. He says, And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, this is my track record, but my track record, whether good or bad, doesn't define me. He says, All those things are true about me, but they're not the truest thing about me. Because the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant towards me. What, what a way to see yourself. How do you see yourself right now? Is the truest thing about you the fact that God's grace has been just waterfalled, dumped, showered upon you? That, that's what this word actually means. Exceedingly abundant. The idea is like a rushing waterfall. And that's what God's grace is. It's his unmerited love. It's the goodness and the love of God that just flows from his heart to us apart from us ever deserving it. And there's no fighting against it. Like, if you've ever stood under a waterfall, you, well, you're probably not here, actually, if you ever did that. Don't do that, right? There's no fighting against that. All there is is being showered down upon. All there is is just being completely covered in that love and that grace, exceedingly abundant. Now, here's what Paul says about himself. I love this. You guys know this verse, right? 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, Paul says, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I love that. What's the gospel? This is a great way to present the gospel to your friends, right? You want to know what the gospel is? Here's a great and faithful saying. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Me, I'm the captain sinner. I'm the captain now. You know, like I'm, I'm the chief sinner. I'm the head sinner. Like he identified himself as this guy that was greatly sinful but greatly loved. I think it was John Newton that said at the end of his life, his life, two things held true. He said, I am a great sinner, but God is a great savior. And I love that Paul says this about, this is the last verse there. He says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So that's us. Paul's talking about us in the future. And Paul's like, the grace that God's had on me, being so undeserving of it, is because... Um, there's going to be Christians in the 21st century that are also going to struggle to find their identity either in their good performance or bad performance. And so God has had such grace and mercy upon me as a pattern for those who are going to believe. We're, guys, we're all a part of the same club here. It's all the same pattern. When you look at Paul's testimony, you don't have, some, you don't have someone unique in the fact that he's a sinner saved by grace. You have another sinner in the family of God who's been rescued, who's been redeemed, who's been defined by the love of God for him displayed in Christ. So that's a big thing that defines Paul's life, gratitude for the grace of Jesus. Uh, but really where you get the book of Philippians is I think also this big um, other point about Paul's life, and it's service to the lordship of Jesus. I really think these are the two things that summarize this guy. A guy who's like, I am what I am by grace. Thank you, God, for grace. Thank you that my identities and what Christ has done for me, not what I do or have failed to do for him. And then also, my whole life is about serving the Lord Jesus. Did you notice in this, in this uh, interaction in Acts 9 where, where Paul and, and Jesus are face to face, Paul asks this really poignant question. He has two questions. Uh, and these two questions, I believe these two specific questions that Paul asks they determine the course of his whole life. First is, who are you, Lord? Who is Lord? That, that will change the course of your life. Some of us, we need to ask that question. Some of us, we are answering what we think about that question and living accordingly. First question, who are you, Lord? Who is Lord? 
For a long time, for Paul, this was his religion was Lord, right? Look at the things he did because of that. Man, in Philippi, Caesar is Lord. Government is Lord. In secular humanism, self is Lord. I am Lord. That's the idea. But Paul goes, who are you, Lord? Who is Lord? He says, I am Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It's the first question that determined the course of Paul's life. And the next question Paul asks, it's the only proper question. When Jesus says, hi, I am Lord, our response is, like Chick-fil-A, how can I serve you? It's my pleasure, okay? Truly, who is Lord? Jesus. Then Paul asks, asks this question. Do you see it there? He says, who are you and what do you want me to do? I don't know if we've come face to face with the lordship of Jesus if we haven't asked that question. Because you are Lord, how can I serve you? In other words, I'm surrendering my life to serve your purposes because I really believe you're Lord. That's a Christian. Jesus isn't just Savior. He is Savior, but he's Savior and Lord. The Lord of Lords. D.L. Moody said he's either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. He's the Lord of Lords. He, he's the Lord at which every knee will bow one day. And Paul's saying, you're Lord, therefore how can I serve you? And what a great way to, to define what a Christian's life should look like. And what a great example of what Paul's life looked like. When, when Paul recognized that Jesus was Lord, he's like, okay, my whole life now is about serving you. That's what happens when you recognize that. When you encounter Jesus as Lord, a lot of us, we just have Jesus as Savior. He's like over here, he's Savior. Thank you, Savior. You know, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Remember those? Like, Jesus, it's one thing I want to say with Jesus Christ. You know, it's just like quick, you know what I mean? You ever hear that? It's just kind of like so subtle. It's like, well, is he, is he really Lord, right? We know he's Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for my Savior. But Jesus, you are Koryos in the Greek. Now, Koryos, Lord, Master, was always used synonymously with another Greek word, and it was the word doulos, bondservant or slave, which is not like a fun word to use, and we don't like to, there's reasons why we wouldn't use that in our culture, but that's what Paul is saying about himself. In Philippians, he says, I am a bondservant of my Lord. I exist to serve him and his purposes. That's what it looks like to encounter Jesus as Lord, as you identify as his servant. And I would just have you evaluate your own life and just ask yourself, man, is Jesus my Lord? Is he Lord? Have I surrendered everything to serve him? My work, my job, my family, my marriage, my purpose. You know, when, when you do, what you get is a, is a testimony to life like Paul. This is a, a map of what Paul's life ended up looking like as a missionary. What do you want me to do, Lord Jesus? How do you want me to serve you? Jesus says, I want you to testify of me to the Gentiles. And Paul took that very seriously, okay? He, the guy covered some ground. He brought the gospel to places that hadn't even heard of, Jehovah. He brought the gospel to places that had some concept. But this is a map of, of four of Paul's missionary journeys. Now, I, want, I just want to state that we talked about this last week, but like being on mission and being a servant of Jesus, you know, it doesn't mean that if you don't do this, like at the end of your life, if you're a Christian map, it doesn't look like this. <laughs> Was Jesus really Lord? You know, that's not... But I would just kind of look at, you, look at more the volume of your day. Look at the volume of your life. One of the most, one of the most Christian, Christ-like things that you can do is be faithful where you are. Serve Jesus where you are. A lot of times it's like, I'd rather go somewhere else where people don't know me, you know. And I can kind of start fresh. But just being faithful where you are. But look, what a great picture of Paul's life. There's this mission statement, I think, that comes from Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he's about to face great danger for serving Jesus. And he says this. People are like prophesying over him like, yeah, it's going to be bad. You're, you're going to go to jail, Paul. And he goes, yeah, but none of these things move me. Okay? He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Why? What's his life about? That I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a vision for a resilient life right there. Like, I'm just here to serve Jesus to the end despite what's, what's thrown at me. Even if it means I'm thrown in prison. Um, so, so this is, is Paul. Now, the backstory of the church kind of tags on to this because Paul, as this missionary, on one of his second missionary journeys, go to Acts 16, flip to the right a bit, Acts 16. 
so you know in my notes, that section was about half, and the rest is going to get zoomed in here a little faster. I know you're thinking about the Chiefs right now. Come on, chicken wings. Come back. Paul, okay? You know, Paul was a missionary. He went on these different missionary journeys bringing the gospel. And, you know, his custom uh, with that map I showed you, like, was you know, he was like the first church planter, essentially. But church planning back then, it wasn't about, there was like no concept of like church planning, like 501c3, like, like none of that. Like, got to get a volunteer team together. Like, Paul, in fact, if you said to him, hey, Paul, you're going to plant a church, he'd be like, plant a church? I'm like, no, I'm going to plant the gospel, right? He'd go into a city and he'd sow seeds of the gospel, and if the spirit willed and if hearts were softened, it would become a church, right? So the spirit really plants the church. The Christian's job is to really, uh, you know, increases the church, and, and the Christians are called to plant the gospel, and that's what Paul would do. He'd go everywhere like a sower, like Jesus said, and just scatter seed, like, you know, just going to go everywhere. I'm going to go to Iconium, going to go to Lystra, going to go everywhere, just going to scatter seed of the gospel. And out of that, you have these incredible missional movements, and one of those is the, the backstory here of the church at Philippi. Now, this book that we're going to be studying, it's, it's really important. Um, Philippi, northern Greece, it's the first church in the European continent. Really important. So like a lot of our Protestant heritage today comes from, we're thankful that Paul planted this church. And, and so Paul plants this church for his first missionary journey to Europe there. His, it was his, uh, uh, his second one. And in Acts 16, you get there's really two big points. I won't read it for the sake of time, all of it. But when you read Acts chapter 16 in this passage, you get two big ideas about Paul's, uh, Paul planting the church of Philippi, where this book comes from. There's no Christians in Philippi up to this point. In fact, Paul doesn't even have Philippi on his radar. When you read Acts 16, you, see, you get this great picture of how the Spirit guides us in life. In verse 6, it says that when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, notice this phrase. Have you ever read this, Acts 16, 6? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Isn't that interesting? We're going to go preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit's like, no, don't do that. It's like, the Holy Spirit just told me not to preach the gospel. Is that the Holy Spirit? Is that, did I eat chicken wings? Is that what that is? And now I'm like feeling... Like, what's going on here? It says, and they had come to Mysia. They tried to go to, into Bithynia. But again, now a second stop, the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. You see, the Holy Spirit was saying, nope, 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 because I have a yes. I have a, I, have a, I have a job for you. And a man of Macedonia stood, pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So it's the Macedonian call where Paul has this vision of a man in the night who's saying, Paul, come help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. I just have a note in my Bible, by the way. This is kind of cool. Four years ago, this is one of the verses the Lord gave me with starting solace. It was this idea of being conclusive, like this is what we're supposed to do. Now, isn't this interesting? Like all along the way here, it seems like Paul is, is, is like very well guided by the Holy Spirit. I really admire that. So Paul's like, we're doing the thing God's called us to do, but we're not just living according to our own plans. This is important. There, there's room in my life for the Holy Spirit to interrupt my plans. There's room in my course for the Holy Spirit to be like, nope, rerouting, this way. And often how he does that is maybe he closes doors. You're like, man, I was planning on going to this church or planning to move to this city or planning to do this thing. And the Holy Spirit's like, nope. And, and to me, first of all, it's a great, um, it's a great reminder of the good news of, of the fact that the Spirit guides us. It's, I love Proverbs 69. Don't you love this verse? A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Isn't that happening? Paul's got, Paul's got all these plans. Don't we? Our plans, right? What's the saying? Like when we tell God our plans, he laughs, right? <laughs> good plan, right? That doesn't mean don't plan. Right? Commit your plans to the Lord. You can plan. But be directed by the Spirit. That's the idea here. So there's, there's great encouragement here to know that this Holy Spirit wants to lead God's people. Like maybe right now you're like, I'm trying to figure out what to do, where to go. The Holy Spirit wants to lead you. Maybe he's closed some doors because he's leading you somewhere. But this also is a reminder to check our own lives and say, okay, is there room for God's Spirit? How much of my plans are my plans? And do I have room in my life? You know, the, the saying is, is, you know, when it comes to the script of our life, we're not the directors, right? 
We're the directed. God is the director. Wherever he says we go, whatever he says do, we do. And what, what a great picture of being available. This Man, when we, were, when we were praying about starting the church, there was like all these different, like, oh, I think we should go do this. And God's like, nope. And we're like, oh, okay, maybe we should go. Nope. It's like, and then I had a dream of, of some man in Boca. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. That would have been awesome. That would have been great. That would have been cool. Um, but we concluded, like, this is what God wants us to do. And man, that should be true of all of us. God doesn't want you to be unsure about what he's doing in your life. Now, there's times where the mystery is up to him and you just got to step, but he wants to lead you if you will be led by him. So Paul goes into the city and and there's there's not just this great picture here in Acts 16 about how the spirit guides, but the start of this church is amazing. So man, this is like, for me, reading this, this was really big with starting souls is like, Lord, I don't want to... I don't want to start a church in the flesh. You could do it all. You could get the budget. You could buy the chair. You know, you could do all the things. It's amazing how you could, like, start a church today without God, if you know what I mean. Like, no prayer. No, like, just, just buy the things you need. Tell enough jokes, I guess, you know. Like, like, be, like have the right musicians, you know. Just, just get Ben up there jamming, you know. And, like, so, like, you know, it, it can be really easy. I love Ben. It can be really easy to just kind of, like, do the things of God in the flesh. You know what I mean? And so here's Paul. Like, no, he's like, no, we're going by the Spirit. We want this to be a work of the Spirit. We're going to seek the Lord before we do anything. We want it to be a Spirit-led process. I want to walk in the Spirit. And the result of that is one of the most beautiful for homework. This is, this is real homework here, okay? Like, it's due next week, all right? Like, I really want to encourage you to read the whole narrative of Acts 16. Read the narrative. What you're going to find in Acts 16 is this picture of how the gospel includes everyone. Everyone. There's three people. The, 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 the first three people that get saved in Philippi is a woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple fabric. She's a wealthy woman. She's led to Christ, a woman. Next is a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and there were fortune kind of businesses that were using her demonic power for profit. She gets delivered. The demonic fortune tellers are not happy about it. Business drops. Game stops. Stock. Boom. Okay? <laughs> not good. And then there's this Philippian jailer. They go to jail. And one of the prison guards gets saved. He's a Gentile. Now, this is amazing. This is such a fun study. Okay, who gets saved? A woman, a slave, a Gentile. Now, this is remarkable because uh, there was a Jewish prayer that the head, of a, head of the house would pray every morning, the patriarch, the man. I don't agree with the prayer. I just want you to know that. But here's the prayer. This is, uh, every morning, here's the Jewish man's prayer. God, I thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I threw in the amen there because it just feels right. But like, amen, it's like, <laughs> it just, it's like, what a, it's like, how about like our father who art in heaven? You know what I'm saying? Like, try that one. But this was, in that culture, genuinely speaking, when it came to the Jewish tradition about God, there was this view, like we might carry today, where there are some people who are favored by God more than others. And some people can come in and be a part of the family. And, you know, we have, we have these sort of like these class thing that we do. So we have a slave and there's a class issue. We have a woman, it's a gender issue. We have a Gentile, it's a race issue. So you have sexism, classism, racism. All at work here to say some people get my favor and love, some people get God's favor and love, and some don't. And isn't it like God to send Paul by the Spirit into Philippi and to start the church with all three of these people? That's amazing. A woman, a slave, a Gentile. Later on in Galatians chapter 3.28, here's what Paul says. He goes, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. A woman, a slave, a Gentile, the the sort of class systems that we can create, the sort of race systems that we can create, the gender systems that that we can create, the idea that God, listen, before, before there was any of that sort of division, God made male and female in his image before there was class. He set his value and his worth upon them. And so that's where this church comes from. And then uh, for the sake of getting you out of here, number three, the backdrop of this letter, okay? So that's where this church comes from. Please read Acts 16 this week. It's going to be really helpful and remarkable as you kind of see the story there. 
of the backstory of this church, a work of the Spirit leading Paul, and then just how the gospel includes the people we would maybe exclude because we have our own systems of God's favor, you know, like who gets it, who doesn't, uh, rather than all who come to Jesus by faith, the whosoevers. Uh, and then you get the backdrop of this letter. Um, so, again, it's only one verse, but back to Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. So now Paul plants that church in Acts 16. So it starts with those three people, woman, slave, a Gentile. And then that church grows. It becomes a house church. starts in a house. All right? Um, I love that. Because church, you know, it wasn't like a church service thing. It was like, we're family. We're going to do life together. We're going to... You know, we're going to be in community groups, and we're going to do life. And so that, that church grows. Now, 10 years later, 10 years after Acts 16, Paul plants the church. He moves on. You have, that's the backdrop to now Paul writing Philippians. So he's like the church planter, right, of this, of this church. And there's great affection in his heart. There's this sense of, like, fatherly, you know, like, heart for them. He loves them. And uh, when Paul was in peril at one point, this church in Philippi, they were a great blessing to him. They brought him a gift, a financial gift to, to encourage him and support his ministry. So in a lot of ways, the backdrop of Paul writing this letter to this church 10 years later is he was saying thank you. It's like a thank you letter, which is kind of cool. He actually starts with that. Like, I thank God every time I think about you. And so there's this great gratitude in his heart for this church. But I think the most significant thing about the backdrop is where Paul's writing this letter from 10 years later. We don't know the accommodations exactly. But Paul is in prison. That's one thing that's for sure. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to see Paul is talking about his chains. He's in chains for the gospel. Some people think a Roman prison cell, um, which, by the way, like, I don't know what comes, don't think of that, like, the prison TV shows that you watch or anything. Like, there's no bowling alley in Paul's prison cell. There's, we're talking like a slum. We're talking like a pit discomfort. Um, there's a lot of popular opinion. I would, I would believe more that this might, might fit in with Acts 28, where Paul's like on kind of house arrest and, in, and like surrounded by prison guards, and he's about to face trial. But nonetheless, Paul is imprisoned. Like his, his external circumstances are not awesome. He's quarantined, you could say, okay? He's stuck in his house. Hello, I should have preached this last year, okay? But uh, that, that's where he's writing this letter from. It, it's such a significant point. Paul is writing a thank you letter from prison. And he's writing it to the church at Philippi. And he, he has such a, a heart for this church. You see it in this book. We're going to read it. Uh, Philippi, this church, we, we see that they're facing challenges as a church both within and without. So they're facing challenges within uh, when it comes to division. There's, there's, there's two women in chapter 4 that have a dispute in the church. You know, church was way different back then, guys, okay? Way different, all right? Women would argue. And, and uh, there, so he's, isn't that amazing, though, like how much Paul cares about unity? It wasn't like a major, this is really interesting. We'll see this in chapter 4. It's not like there was a major church split happening. There were just two women in the church that couldn't get along. And so isn't it crazy like that, that mattered enough to Paul to write to them about unity? That's how much unity in the church matters. Unifying together, making sure pride doesn't get in the way, making sure that we're keeping it about Jesus, making sure that we don't have our own agenda to the church, right? So we see that. That was one of the challenges they're facing. That's kind of the backdrop. We read that in chapter 4. There's also challenges from without. There's like that's, The church faces that too. Uh, we're always in danger of internal division and external distraction, where the culture is trying to get into the church. And, and, and false theology and false ideology, ideas matter, are, are starting to, to kind of seep in. And so Paul's writing into that context, uh, into that backdrop um, of this letter. Uh, Philippi, it's also important to point this out. At this time, Philippi, that's where the church is. This is really important. Philippi is a Roman colony. A Roman colony. Years prior, there's a civil war that happens there. Rome wins. In Greece, and you have a lot of the soldiers settle there, and, Ro uh, and Philippi in Greece becomes a Roman colony. It's like Rome in Greece. It's like the cult, everything. Like it was Roman occupied, uh, it was Roman law, and there were great benefits to, to being a Roman. Like there was tax breaks. It's like, I'm all about that. Caesar, okay, Caesar is Lord, sure, sure, good tax break. Like that's literally what it was. 
Uh, and, and that's the, 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 the bubble that they're writing into, which I think is a great transition to what we'll call, and we'll close with, I'll invite the band up here as we close, the backbone of the message, okay? So we've, we've got, here's what we got so far. We got the background of the author, Paul's background. We see a life defined by grace and servanthood. But we see the backstory of this church showing us how the spirit guides and how the gospel includes. We see the backdrop of this letter is Paul's in prison, churches in Philippi facing internal, external challenges in a culture that is um, Greek, but with a Roman culture, a Greek location, Roman culture. And that's a great setup for what I'll call the backbone of this message. The, the backbone of the message of Philippians. And we're going to explore this. I'm so excited. You guys excited for this series? I'm so excited to just walk through this book and see how Jesus... And remember, like, when we study books of the Bible, it's not just like, oh, I want to know more. Like, like you, you don't need to be here to learn more. Like, there's, like, Google's much smarter than me. You know what I mean? Like, but the heart of us going through a book like this is to say, God, what are you trying to do in our lives right now, uniquely as a community following you here in this moment? And here is what Philippians is essentially seeking to communicate. This is what we're after here over the next few months. The backbone of Philippians is how the gospel of Jesus, it's about how the gospel of Jesus leads us beyond the limits of an ordinary life. An ordinary life. That's where we're headed. An ordinary life. And when I say ordinary, I mean a, a kind of life that would like just be defined by where you're at physically. Or, or maybe what's, what's happening to you circumstantially. But, but I love that we, we saw this early on. Paul writes to, to the church and he says, you are the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. I love that. Like, this is where you are. You're in Philippi. Like, wherever you are in life right now, it's where you are. That's not, not that that's not true, but it's not the only truth about your story. Yeah, you're in Philippi, but I love this, but you're also in Christ Jesus. It's like dual zip codes. You see, the idea here is this. There's more to your story than what's happening to you circumstantially. There's more to your story than just where you're at physically. Because you're not just in your circumstance. You're not just in South Florida. You don't just have an ordinary life. You're in Christ Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, it translates us out of this ordinary standing and says, now you're in him. And so you can be in the deepest, darkest prison cell and be an extraordinary prisoner. A prisoner that says, yeah, this stuff's happening to me, but I'm in Christ. And so I got a letter to write to Philippi. I got a perspective to have. You know, it's interesting as Paul's writing He's exemplifying the very things he's saying. Yeah, this is where I'm at, but it's not the truest thing about me. I'm in Jesus. And you'll see Paul especially, you know, the book of Philippians is most known as a letter of what? Joy, right? It's over 16 times that the idea of joy and rejoicing is used from a guy who's in prison. Extraordinary. Beyond the limits of an ordinary life. Above the status quo. And it's, again, it's the message of the book. The, the message of the book, and this is such a, a, an important point that Paul's making because the, these Christians were so prone to just be another ordinary Roman citizen. I'm just going to be another ordinary Roman citizen. I'm just going to be in Philippi, and, you know, here's the Roman culture coming into Philippi and taking over. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not you. You know, in chapter 3, we saw it. He says, your citizenship's in heaven. You're, you're, you're a citizen of heaven. This is beautiful. Because in light of this truth, one of the main verses in chapter 27 is where Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ where you are. Um, and the word there, conduct, it's the Greek word politeo, where we get the word politics. And Paul, literally, he's saying, conduct your, like, pol your political life is what he's saying. As a citizen of heaven should be worthy of the gospel. And this was such a beautiful illustration because think about what he's saying. Just like 
Rome is seeking to make Philippi Rome with citizens of Rome. You're where you are to make where you are like heaven. You're a citizen of heaven where you are. You're not just in Philippi, you're in Christ. And the gospel of Jesus has freed you beyond these limits of an ordinary life. And what we read throughout this book, man, we see what that kind of extraordinary life looks like. That extraordinary life. He's going to talk about extraordinary joy. Extraordinary love. Perspective. Chapter 2, he's going to talk about how the gospel frees us into a life of extraordinary humility. Perseverance. Unity. Peace. How the gospel leads us into have higher, higher thought patterns. Extraordinary contentment even in the worst circumstances. Philippians 4.13, he'll talk about how we can have extraordinary strength in the highs and lows of life. And he'll end with talking about the extraordinary generosity of the gospel. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.